Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us on this Thursday. Another busy show. We are going to continue the discussion as we learn more information about what happened on a stabbing on a bus in Surrey. As we now know, we know who the 17-year-old was who was stabbed, who texted his mom saying he felt worried that there were youth, other youth on the bus, that he was frightened and she was there waiting for him at that bus stop. As we know, he was stabbed on that bus and died a short time later. We're going to talk more about this coming up on the program, but we are starting off taking a look at some similarities between this case and another stabbing that took place decades ago, talking about the death of Jesse Cadman, also in Surrey. Joining us right now to talk more about this is Chris Matheson. Chris is one of the two youth who at the time helped put a report together on youth violence. This was for the mayor of Surrey back in 1993. And Chris, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, when you see this uh, case of uh, 17-year-old, uh, this, the 17-year-old who was killed on this bus, what goes through your mind? Oh, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, anytime a family loses uh, a young person so early in their life, it's just just awful. What added added, added extra layer for me was just how much it reminds me of Jesse Cadman's murder, which happened almost exactly 30 years ago now. And in that case as, as well, for people that, that maybe aren't familiar, and I remember that uh, that day and learning about it uh, as well, and, and Jesse Cadman also, uh, I think he was 16 at the time, uh, you know, walking, he was in Surrey, he was swarmed. Uh, it seemed like the, the perpetrators didn't like his hat, which was a little different, and he was stabbed, and he was stabbed and killed. When, when you look back at that and you look at the report that you put together, can you remind us a little bit on, on what went into that report? Sure. Yeah. So, so back, in, back in, in the early 90s, I was a teenager going to school in Surrey, and I'd been invited to be a part of something called the Surrey Youth Council, which was sort of like a shadow council for the Surrey Council at the time. Uh, and out of Jesse's murder, uh, Mayor Bob Bowes asked... Uh, Ten of us six come together, uh, two youth and then representatives from lots of other areas, including a police officer, a family doctor, uh, you know, uh, community support workers, so on, to create this very substantial report, which I think had 76 different recommendations on it in the end to try and address the issue of youth violence in Surrey. And was there any indication that those recommendations were taken seriously, that any of them were implemented? Uh, so, some of them, I believe, were at the time. I mean, it, it's, it's been 30 years since then, and I know there's been several other kicks at the can, even just in Surrey, with uh, mayors addressing the issue of, 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 you know, of crime, of violence, of gang activity, of all of those things. And, you know, I don't know how many of them, how many of them were actually dealt with. I think that the bigger driver at the larger level was the fact that Jesse Cadman's uh, father, Chuck Cadman, became a political powerhouse and got elected as a member of parliament and, you know, single-handedly put a lot of pressure into changing the Young Offenders Act and things like that to try and address some of these issues. Yeah, and certainly people will recognize that name and remember what it was exactly the, the death of his son that drove Chuck Cadman to, to go into that political light, into that career. Uh, do you remember what, what some of the main recommendations were or what the takeaway was for you and, and, and putting that report together? Oh, I mean, being, being 30 years ago, I, I am not sure that I've looked at that report in 20 years. Um, so I don't remember all the specifics, but 
but I, I, I do remember that, you know, so much of it was around, you know, what alternatives are we providing for youth? Uh, you know, what, uh, how are agencies actually working together to address some of these things? I think we recognize that this wasn't just an enforcement issue. This wasn't just a legal issue. This was a cultural issue. And, and you know, obviously some of those issues even, you know, continue even to today. And we hear a lot today, uh, I mean, people try and make sense of, of something like this happening. It's impossible. This is, this is a senseless act that somebody was just on his bus going home. His mom was there to meet him, uh, that, that whatever happened on that bus, that it led to a 17-year-old being stabbed to the point that he died. There is no making sense of it. But we certainly do hear people saying, well, is it mental health? Is it that in schools we're not making sure we're addressing children who maybe have learning issues or who have other issues. We're not looking at, uh, at things at prevention. We're not looking at signs early enough on. Um, but, but it's not, I, I mean, I, there's also talk of, of the pandemic. Did this lead us to, to things are, are in a worse state? But again, we look back and what happened to Jesse Cadman was 30 years ago. So clearly it's not something new. It's not something that we haven't seen before. And it does seem like it's just, it's something that we are not paying enough attention to. That's, I mean, that's, that's exactly it. It's, it's easy to find the, the current things that we can point at, and it's easy to say it was one thing or one, another thing. But, I mean, how, how quickly forget that even before Jesse Cadman, we had, we had Sean Tyrone, you know, who, you know, went missing in Wally, and, you know, it took a long time to find him. This was, this was on Inside Edition, the big American, you know, you know show at the time where they were, you know, it was, it was a big issue. And there were so many other things leading up to Jesse and since Jesse that, you know, remind us that these are ongoing issues. These are things that we have to figure out over the long term, not just not just point fingers right now at any one particular thing. Uh, did you ever think that here we would be 30 years after you put this or helped to put this report together on youth violence? Uh, like you said, seeing what Chuck Cadman did to get changes uh, to the Young Offenders Act to get to really shine a light on this, that we would be here uh, talking about this. And even as you and I are talking, there is uh, another release that's been put out by the Delta Police Department uh, saying that they responded to a stabbing that took place on the grounds of an elementary school last night uh, and that a 15-year-old was stabbed, thankfully wasn't killed, but was stabbed in some kind of altercation on a schoolyard. Did you ever think that 30 years down the road we would be talking about this again or still? Oh, oh I, could, I, I couldn't imagine that, you know, here, here I am in my life today that I'd be, be talking about this, this 30 years later. Um, you know, it's, just, it's, 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 it's so sad that, you know, this family now is going to have to grieve so publicly uh, because these are the kinds of issues that just draw the public's attention. You know, thank goodness that somebody like, like uh, Chuck Cadman back in the day was able to harness that, that fury that he felt to, to try and make some change. I hope that other people carry that, though, forward this time so that, the, you know, so that uh, Ethan's family doesn't have to do that themselves. All right, Chris, thank you so much. I know it's not an easy topic, but thank you so much for joining us, uh, for talking about uh, your involvement back then and again, addressing what's happened now. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. That is Chris Matheson. He was one of two young people at the time who helped with that report on youth violence. That was back for the mayor of Surrey in the early 90s, following the death of Jesse Cadman. Well, just before we take a short break, I want to go to the phone lines because Karen is on the line and you will recognize Karen's voice. Karen has joined us many times talking about crime and crime prevention. Karen, thank you so much for calling in. Oh, thank you so much, Jill. Listen, it breaks my heart. Another young human being has been murdered 
in our city. I am absolutely beside myself about this because I run an organization. We have over 500 university and high school students giving back and making a difference. Many of them were on the wrong path. But the lack of acknowledgement and recognition that organizations like ours exist, we need to do more. We need to break down the silos. We need to stop the political games in our city, and we need to work together. And it just is not working right now. I, we, have, we are making a difference. Our kids have given back over 275,000 hours in the past 10 years. And these kids are university high school students from different ethnic, ethnicity, sorry, diverse multicultural backgrounds. And it's just appalling that this young man lost his life. He was reaching out to his mom. His mom was waiting for him. And I can't even imagine, as a mom of two kids, I just can't imagine losing my child to such violence and such senseless violence. It's just beyond comprehension. And I really think that the uh, programs that we have in place, they're great, but the, it's a piecemeal approach. And I applied for funding through the city with the government of Canada, and we were turned down. Uh, we get funding from the city, we get funding from the gaming grant, but it's not enough. Who else can say they have over 500 volunteers out there five days a week? Every They're out there doing at least 12 programs, and we're consistently out there making a difference. And it's just a piecemeal approach. We're always trying to find more funding. I've had to pull back on funding this uh, program this year because of lack of funding from uh, grants. And when you have such a, we're, we've been around since 1984, and we have a strong reputation in our city. And I'm just so frustrated to see that this young man was murdered, and we've had another incident incident last week. There's just too many examples of kids. And the violence that's out there, and now Delta police are saying that a kid was stabbed on their school grounds. I mean, we have kids from all over the Lower Mainland coming to our program because we're, we really are the only organization of our kind outside of a police model giving kids an opportunity to give back. And I'm telling you right now, Jill, my heart's breaking, and we can make a difference, but we have to get the support of the governments in a big way as far as funding goes so we can expand our programs. I mean... Right now, I've got the um, minimum wage going up, and that's hitting us our bottom line. The cost of living is going up, and I've got great staff, but it, it's just frustrating that we cannot exist without funding, and it's got to be consistent funding. It can't be a piecemeal approach. No, Sorry I, for venting. No, not but, at all, because you raise a really good point, because so much of the focus this week following this has been safety, and it's been a police presence, a transit police presence, and security presence on buses, on SkyTrain, which is important, but that's not solving the problem. Yes, maybe it would stop some of this from happening. Police can't be everywhere, but but you make an excellent point. It, it it's, it, stopping it while it's happening is not the solution. Preventing we, it from we, happening is. We had a program, and I'm going to be vocal about this now. We had a program with Transit Police since 2015, and Transit Police just canceled their funding for that, called the Transit Watch Program, where our volunteers were out there observing and reporting five days a week around the transit hubs in Surrey. We're talking about the Newton bus loop, which has serious problems. We have uh, SkyTrain stations in Surrey that have problems in and around, and we are observing and reporting on so many different things, overdoses, assaults in progress, crime in progress, and, our ki and they canceled our funding. It wasn't a lot of money, but 
I'm trying to reach out to the police board to get them to rethink that. Why was it? Why was it canceled? Budget. Hmm. And I mean, you're talking. We're talking about all the hubs in the city of Surrey. Our volunteers are there. All the major centers are volunteers are there five days a week, and they're observing and reporting in and around uh, around the SkyTrain station and the bus loops. And unfortunately, that program is just canceled last year. And um, I wrote a letter to the Transit Police Board. I'm hoping I can hear back uh, soon. But it's, we're talking about $14,000. <laughs> like, it's not a big budget line item. You know what I mean? No, no, not and, at all. And, and when you talk about kids making a difference, that's, that's one example. Like, when you have extra eyes and ears out there looking for stuff, I mean, the kids that are we have have been called. They called in stuff to the RCMP, sorry, uh, the RCMP and transit police when they see um, you know suspicious activity. Youth are who are loitering and causing wreaking havoc. We, kids who are uh, going after another kid. We've had so I could give you multiple examples. You can come into my office and I could show you a list of all the stuff they've reported, and they are making a difference. But you know we cannot have this piecemeal approach anymore. All right. Well, Karen, we will follow up on this uh, guaranteed, and I'm sure we'll talk to you again. But thank you so much for calling in. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you so much. As you know, we have been talking about the 17-year-old who was fatally stabbed on a Surrey Transit bus. So we heard earlier from the Premier talking about this. I will share some of his comments coming up a bit later this half hour. The Premier does say, though, that Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth is reaching out to transit authorities as well as to police to see if more resources are needed to ensure public safety. We are also hearing today from 17-year-old Ethan Best Flug's mother. Uh, we heard yesterday from his aunt who gave us a bit more details about how things unfolded earlier today, though his mother spoke with Global News. You'll hear much more from her during the news hour at six o'clock this evening. Uh, but she talked about how she still feels numb and can't believe this is happening. She was like, you know, I can take this bus back. It's only a 10 minute drive from the house. Like, and I'm like, if it's early enough, that's fine. Like, I'm, I'm okay with that. He's very independent. He loves traveling all over the place, like, and so he's on the bus home, like, coming home. And you think being on the bus, you're supposed to be safe on the bus. That is Ethan Bessflug's mother, again, uh, speaking with Global News. Let's check in now with Eleanor Sturko, the BC United MLA for Surrey South, also a former RCMP officer in Surrey, to talk a little bit more about this. Eleanor, thank you so much for being with us and for talking more about this today. No problem, Jill. We're getting a bit more information, and the story just becomes even more heartbreaking, even more senseless as we're learning more from the family of seventeen-year-old, the seventeen-year-old who was stabbed and killed on the bus. I know you put out on social media saying that this is unacceptable and this is devastating. What what could be done though, or what are your thoughts on the reaction to this and the fact that this even happened? Well, we don't know all the factors in the circumstance yet, um, and but we know that we've had, in a very short period of time, I think less than a week now, we've had three serious knife incidents um, on public transit. One in New Westminster, we had a slashing of someone in the throat in Surrey less than a week ago, and then now we have this other uh, young person who's become a homicide victim. 
in my opinion, you know, we should have been stepping up some patrols, or at least the, the province should have been offering, um, you know, an enhancement to uh, the transit police and other jurisdictions to allow them to have increased patrols to help pay for overtime, start looking at things like, do we have sufficient cameras? Do we have sufficient deterrence? Um, but the reality is, you know, the catch and release justice that we have goes beyond the courtroom. You know, you've heard the opposition talk a lot about uh, the premier's catch and release and a lot of it gets equated to when we talk about bail reform and and you saw their repeat announcement yesterday talking about their bail hubs but the reality is that catch and release justice is actually a failure of policies in mental health and addictions and we're talking about concurrent illnesses um you know we don't know all the factors in all of these cases yet but there is a connection between some of these types of acts and social issues, a lot of times violence um, associated to some underlying mental health issues. So, I mean, it's a failure on so many levels. Um, and frankly, it's just completely unacceptable. It's disheartening and uh, it's outrageous that more action hasn't been taken now considering the seriousness of the issues that have taken place in the community. When we talk about the failing, though, and I get what you're saying, and I and I know you get criticized for for politicizing something as sad and as heartbreaking as this, but and you're right, we don't know all of the details, but we do know that somebody was on that bus and somebody got on that bus with a knife with something that they knew they could use to hurt another human being. Uh, we know there was an exchange, and we know that 17 year old Ethan Bestflug was stabbed to the point that he died. Does that not point to a lack of consequence, a failing on the part of the justice system in that how does somebody do that unless they feel, unless they know that even if they do that to another human being, there are no consequences? Well, you know, that's a really complex question because, of course, consequence you know, plays a factor even when, <clears throat> pardon me, when we talk about sentencing and the reason why people who are convicted of crimes get sentences. But, you know, the basis of our correctional system, the reason even it's called a correctional system is because we're supposed to be helping people to correct behaviors, correct things, um, you know, help them overcome illnesses and other factors that have led them to commit a crime. When you think about a person who has the mindset of carrying a weapon for a dangerous purpose and then taking that weapon, regardless of whether it's a knife, a rock, a stick, anything could be used as a weapon when someone has that mindset and is able to use it against another person. I think we have to take a serious look, not just at the policing, not just at things like what happens in court, but it's actually those underlying causes. Think, Jill, about the things that we saw. We saw a horrific, horrific attack on someone outside of a Starbucks in Vancouver. Then we have a person chased away with a knife in Surrey, one slashed in the throat to the point where they had to be in critical condition. Then we have uh, a police officer slashed and a shooting on a public transit, and now we have this homicide. I mean, these are all of I would bet dollars to donuts. Each of them has some type of underlying either mental health or certainly a social issue. So it goes beyond the courtroom. These catch and release justice system, the failures that are happening right now that are putting the public at risk, go beyond the courtroom and go beyond bail. It really points to inadequate um, safeguards for the public in terms of this government's ability to deal with concurrent mental health and addictions issues and social issues that are putting people in 
these dangerous situations. And there's lots of things that could be done. Um, you know, I, I feel very upset, really, because on the 3rd of, of April, when we went back to question period, and I had asked, can we please ask the minister if they're enhancing patrols? You know, he did not answer that actual question. In fact, he admonished us for for bringing it up and said that we were politicizing. And that's certainly not what I'm, I'm trying to do. Is We're not in the middle of an election. I'm not campaigning. My job as a critic, my job as the opposition is to try to get the government to take accountability and to represent the people of Surrey who expect to be safe in their community. So it's my job to point this out. I'm pointing out that they had lots of opportunity between then and now to take steps. They could enhance the number of psychiatric nurses uh, riding with police officers in communities. They could um, have a CAR 67 program uh, for transit police. There's so many things that could be done. Um, and I just don't see any of that happening. And it's, it's unconscionable. And and we talked yesterday, or the the chief of the transit police joined me on the show yesterday, and uh, Dave Jones talked about the fact that they they that transit is safe, and that yes, there have been uh, these very very horrific and sad cases uh, recently, but th- that it is still safe. You're you're generally not alone when you're on transit, and there are ways to call for help. I think that's one of the big questions here too: is how did this happen on a bus where presumably there were other people on the bus? There was a driver. Uh, how can something like this happen, something so personal as someone being stabbed to the point they lost their life? How can this happen without, and not suggesting that people need to intervene and put themselves in danger, but are there not mechanisms mechanisms in place to call for help or to get that intervention? Well, we don't know all the factors, for example, in this particular case, because we don't know whether or not the person, we know that they texted allegedly their parent and, you know, which is breaking my heart. Absolutely. That they texted their parent, that they were afraid and and they were waiting for them, you know, um, but we don't know whether or not any bus driver was aware of the situation. We don't know what other witnesses had observed or whether there was any opportunity for the victim to, to call for help. So, that will be something that would be very good to review after all the information, you know, comes to light. But, you know, I don't want to say that, that, that transit is unsafe. You know, I'm not trying to label transit as, as unsafe. But, but tell me, why is it that we have so many of these unexpected, quote-unquote, sort of one-off anomalies? You know, shouldn't you be able to go to Starbucks without uh, a homicide occurring? Shouldn't you be able to know that your child is riding home on a bus from their friend's house without being stabbed? Shouldn't you be able to to go into the community without having to fear for your safety? And I think telling people it's safe and then seeing the reality of within a very short period of time. So I think it's like a two-week period. There's two homicides and two other knife incidents, like four very serious knife incidents. And, and, I just think more needs to be done. This isn't um, a case of, well, you know, it's just one off and we go on with our lives. Something has to change because people deserve to be safe. And, you know, when we see something happening like this, we we see that there are mental health issues, certainly, um, you know, things that have even been made public with regard to some of these other cases. Um, Looking at what's happened in Nanaimo, um, just... It's inexcusable and enough is enough. I think I'm hearing from constituents and people all across the city that, you know, while we don't want to try to take advantage in any way of any of these issues, they're symptomatic of a larger problem that needs to be addressed.
Well, absolutely. And I know this case too. And like you said, we don't know everything that happened, but there are some eerily similar uh, things happening with the death of 17-year-old Ethan Besplug on that Surrey bus to go, going all the way back to 1992 when Jesse Cadman was swarmed and stabbed to death. And I know a lot of people are asking the same question. Have we not learned anything? Why is this still happening? You know, it, I, I spoke yesterday on the radio and there's many things and we really do need to have a better look at, you know, a recovery-oriented system of care for the entire province where all of the ministries are working together under the lens of improving our situation overall with public safety and health and wellness for the entire province. If you feel unsafe, you don't feel well. And the reality is, is that it starts even in our schools. Um, I'm also the education critic. I know that this government is moving away from things like um, having people diagnosed with learning disabilities. And, you know, having a learning disability does not guarantee that you will be criminal. It doesn't guarantee that, you know, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to, um, you know, have a mental health issue later in life or use drugs. But we do see a high percentage of people who end up coming into contact with the criminal justice system have learning disabilities, many times undiagnosed. We see people with um, undiagnosed learning disabilities having challenges later in life, social problems and social issues. So it starts right at school. We need to continue to enhance our education system so that we're supporting people from the beginning of life right through into adulthood. You know, I visited yesterday Redfish um, Healing Center with members of the Green Party. Um, You know, we saw some of the great programming that they have dealing with concurrent mental health and addictions issues, but they only serve about 300 people a year from all over the province, and we know that there's far more than that. And in addition, as soon as the people are done that program or, or leave that program, there's insufficient supports for people once they leave. And in fact, I've been alerted to um, multiple times where people finished that program, were discharged to St. Paul's Hospital, and then subsequently put into a homeless shelter. So we're putting people who we are trying to help right back into the same crisis-inducing situation they came from and then expecting a different outcome. We need to support people better starting right from childhood so that we don't end up having some of these absolutely horrific things happen in the communities that we're seeing right now. It's, it's unacceptable. And Eleanor, just one more question. If, if I can ask you maybe to take off your MLA hat and put back on your policing hat, you have a community that says people don't feel safe. They especially don't feel safe on transit, given what's happened in the past couple of weeks. From a policing point of view, what do you do? Well, my immediate um, recommendation, honestly, I, I do see that both the RCMP and Transit have said that they've increased patrols. That does come with an extra expense to municipalities, which is where the government could step up and offer some enhanced funding to help offset the cost of having increased patrols. It helps them to deter crime, and and it also helps people have a, a better sense of well-being when they can actually see police riding on the SkyTrain, riding on a bus. Um, at a transit hub being there for the community. But another way is that honestly, outside of policing, they really need to hurry up and fund the those pack teams like they have on the North Shore. Um, we are very much lacking in uh, mental health supports at the early levels. It shouldn't come to a crisis. It shouldn't come to a point where people are 
um, you know, at the point where they're at risk of harming themselves or others in the community. We need to have those public um, outreach teams through, you know, Canadian Mental Health and BC Mental Health that, that can go and intervene and provide supports earlier before it gets to the crisis level. And you know what? That will actually free up police to do more enhanced patrols of things like transit hubs, shopping centres and parks. All right. So we'll leave it there for today. Eleanor Sturko, thank you as always. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jill, for having me. We are going to uh, take a few moments to look at real estate in BC and the British Columbia Real Estate Association has put out some new numbers taking a look at residential unit sales uh, as well as the BC housing market in general saying yes, characterized by slow sales, but also still low levels when it comes to listings. Well, joining us to talk more about these numbers is the chief economist with the BC Real Estate Association, Brendan Ogmanson. Brendan, thank you so much for taking some time. Good to be here. Thanks. Uh, walk us through the numbers if you can. So uh, just north of 7,000 residential unit sales recorded with the MLS in March of this year. A pretty big decrease if we're looking, or at least it looks like a big decrease of 38% from March of 2022. That's right. So year over year, we're still comparing to, to a period when the housing market uh, was was very strong in the, the start of 2022. We'll start to see those big year-over-year discrepancies kind of fade in the next few months. Uh, you know, as we we're comparing to to much slower periods uh, post uh, uh, rate hikes by the Bank of Canada. Uh, but you know, sales overall are are pretty slow. The markets, you know, there is overall activity is slow, and the the really big story in the market is that, is just that listings are really slow. So we don't have a lot of inventory in the market, and there's not a lot of new listings coming on the market either. And why do you think that is? It's really the, the, the big question. Uh, normally, when sales are this slow, we get inventory accumulating more. Uh, when rates are this high and people's payments are rising, you tend to see um, more listings. If you know people, unfortunately, can't afford their payment, you get, you get an increase in listings. None of that's happening. We just don't have a lot of like financial vulnerability that tends to come with um, with the sort of uncertainty we're seeing. A big part of it is that labor markets are still really strong. So a lot of potential sellers are, you know, they're still well employed and they can afford their, their payment, even if it might be increasing. Uh, and other sellers don't don't want to sell into a market where, where prices are weaker than they were last year and are, and are holding off because they, they just don't have to sell. Right. And you kind of touched on this. Do you think people, too, that might have in the past be looking to sell or looking to even upgrade a bit, looking at what's happening with interest rates, uh, would rather kind of wait and see than take that hit? I think so. I think there's a lot of that. And, and because they, they can afford to wait and see, because there's not a lot of pressure on them to, to sell. They're not in, in any you know, um, significant dire straits that need to, to get out of their homes quickly. Uh, and there, you know, and, and a lot of it too is that rates are high. If you're locked into a two percent mortgage rate on your current home, and you're thinking about maybe moving, but when you, you know, you, when you move, you're going to need to take out that new mortgage at five and a half percent. That that might cause people to hold off as well. Uh, you, you were quoted as saying, uh, and I mentioned this, so slow sales, very slow level of listings. Uh, what about prices, though? And what are we seeing as far as prices year over year? So year-over-year, prices are still down uh, in BC as a whole by about 12%. In Vancouver, they're only down 5%, and that's that's compared to a time when prices were pretty close to their all-time peak. So in Vancouver, we really haven't seen much of a decline over the past year, and prices have risen now for two consecutive months. So even with 
you know, fairly slow market activity, we're starting to see prices rise again, which is a, a kind of a flashing red sign, you know, signal that we just don't have enough supply in the market. And is it because, like, like you mentioned, is it because people just are kind of sitting and not selling, or is it also because we're simply not building, we're not seeing new starts and new builds? Well, it's kind of a short-term, long-term. So short-term, kind of, you know, there's not enough listings in the market. Longer term, it's, it's all about, you know, not, not building enough. So we, we put out a report a couple of weeks ago saying that we need to build, you know, just to, to offset the increase in, in immigration, we need to increase building by like 25% or completions by 25%. Not realistic, and it's really something we should have been doing the past five to 10 years. Uh, you know, supply doesn't change very quickly. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of really good policy now about rezoning and, and trying to get permits done faster. But even those, those policies are going to take a really long time to affect the market. So, um, you know, right now we're kind of stuck with the housing stock we have and it's pretty limited and, and we're just not seeing a lot of turnover. And uh, looking at uh, around the province as well, and I know your organization puts out uh, the, the kind of comparing uh, the different areas. Uh, and, and like you said, in, in Vancouver, Victoria, um, down, but not down as much as some other areas or even looking at uh, if you're looking at sales. Um, the north looks like it's taken a big hit or thing, things are, are down. Greater Vancouver down uh, just about anywhere. Kamloops, the Kootenays, they're all in that like kind of 35 to 40 percent mark. Yeah, and that's a, the, yeah, the same reason, you know, year over year, all of those markets were still kind of near their, their peaks in terms of, of home sales around this time last year. So this and the next, you know, post-March is when we started to see home sales really start to, to slide last year and, and then continue for about 12 months. So, you know, those, those year over year comparisons will get smaller and smaller and might even turn positive at some point. So, um, you know, they're, they're just indicative of, of how strong the market was last year and then the, in, the impact of interest rates since. Uh, we were talking uh, last week with uh, a realtor, and I get uh, that these are anecdotal uh, things that, that, that we're hearing, but uh, we were talking to him partly because he was saying, you know, for some parts of, uh, of real estate, if we're talking about townhomes uh, and, and even single-family homes in East Vancouver and parts of Metro Vancouver, he was saying he was seeing quite a rebound, a, a kind of a mix of things, and that sellers are realizing the prices are different than they were a few years ago. But he said he is seeing that go back back to multiple offers and places that are selling above listing, which, which kind of indicates a return or, or kind of things getting back on track. Are you seeing that as well? Uh, yeah, for sure. And we're, we're certainly seeing more, more like I think the, the Bank of Canada pausing and even five-year fixed mortgage rates coming down, you know, a little bit from where they peaked is starting to give um, a little more certainty amongst, amongst potential home buyers. Uh, I think it's also just an affordability issue. So, you know, this time last year, even with lower rates, prices were really high. Uh, now prices have come down five or ten percent in a lot of those those markets. Even with rates as high as they are, the actual affordability in terms of your mortgage payment is a little bit lower than it was at the peak. So, but money to say, given how high prices are and how high rates are, affordability has actually improved a little bit over the last couple months because uh, because of the prices coming down over the past year. So, some of that, if you were looking, you know, at a house last year and now it's $200,000 cheaper than it was at the peak, uh, that's going to get some extra buys into the market for sure. And springtime is often a time where we see things pick up. We see more movement when it comes to, to real estate. Uh, we're at mid-April now. Do you see things kind of following that pattern or anticipating that it will pick up even more as we head further into the spring? 
Yeah, so like uh, March and, and April are usually kind of the peak months, and we have kind of another another bump up in May. So really, the period from March until May is where a lot of sales happen. Uh, March was an okay, not great month in terms of sales. April is tracking kind of an average year, so we're about twenty percent below average right now in Vancouver. Uh, whereas April is tracking to be kind of a normal year, which is interesting. So we're certainly seeing just a normalization of sales. They were down significantly from last year and even significantly from just normal times. Uh, so we're starting to see the market get a little bit, uh, starting to recover. Uh, uh, and unfortunately, it's, we don't have enough supply, and that means prices are starting to rise again. And the real worry is that as demand, you know, as sales pick up, all that demand is kind of unleashed. It's going to be once again into a, a supply constrained environment, we might see prices rise uh, faster than I think they should. All right. Well, we will be watching that and looking at what happens next. Brendan Ogmanson, thank you so much for joining us again and talking about these new numbers. Thank you. Well, things could change when it comes to purchasing wine at grocery stores in Vancouver. Vancouver City Council passed a motion unanimously that paves the way to allow wine on the grocery store shelves, like you see in other municipalities such as Langley, Abbotsford, Coquitlam, Kelowna, some stores in Delta, moving away from that store-within-a-store model, which Vancouver has right now. So what does this mean for the BC wine industry? Joining us to talk more about this is Miles Proden, President and CEO of the Wine Growers British Columbia. Miles, thanks so much for being here. Oh, happy to be, be, be here. Uh, how big of a deal is this for BC wine growers that Vancouver is moving to make this change? Well, it's, it's significant. It's, it's really about being able to get our product in front of the consumer. And we know that people in Vancouver uh, love BC wine, and we know that because they, they buy it. And uh, being able to have them uh, get it directly uh, on the grocery shelf, is, is, it's, it's due. It's, it's, it's overdue by, by my estimation. Is it something your group or others in the industry have looked at or even uh, looked at and anecdotally seen in those municipalities, like I just mentioned, where you can already buy wine on the store shelves? Is there a big difference as far as sales? Yeah, there is. And I think it's not just sales, but it's also just availability. Um, those stores uh, where uh, BC wine is available in grocery, if you go into one of them, and hopefully people in Vancouver will be able to do that soon, uh, you'll see a vast array of BC wines. You'll see wines that you've never heard of from wineries uh, you've never seen. And it's just all about access. And the commitment from the grocery, at least when it comes to uh, BC wine, has been huge. And again, in the end, it's really about getting a product in front of the consumer. Consumer. There are other ways. There are other stores. There are liquor stores, private liquor stores, and government liquor stores. But they carry everything, and they don't have rubber walls where they can just continually expand. So we've had great success with grocery carrying uh, 100% BC wine. So I think uh, BC, uh, Vancouver consumers are going to love it. And have you been given any idea on uh, the timeline? I know council just voted on this. Uh, it was unanimous, but uh, how long it might take now to make that change uh, so that wine will be on those store shelves and you can add it to your grocery cart just like anything else? Yeah, well, I think it, people need to understand that there is not an unlimited, in fact, there is a capped amount of licenses that are available, and there's there's a moratorium um, on licenses, uh, retail licenses in the province. There has been for a number of years, and it just recently got extended for another 10 years. 
So um, there's a finite amount. So really, to take advantage of what, uh, what Vancouver City Council has, uh, has has made available, is now a grocer has to uh, either find a license, or in the case of those that have already got it, move a license. So um, it may take some time uh, to be able to, to to find out which which where that makes the most sense. Uh, there are still, I think, limitations within the city of Vancouver. It's not like every grocery store is uh, is eligible. There's there's rules still about how close uh, proximity a store is to a school, for instance, or a church, or, and those sorts of things. So um, I think we need to temper expectations. Um, it's not going to be everywhere. It's not meant to be everywhere. It needs to be a grocery store, and by grocery we mean selling groceries and not hip waiters and uh, and uh, and uh, and other things like that. It needs to be a grocery store. So there, there, there'll be limitations, so it's not going to be on every corner. But again, when we're able to take advantage of it, I think people in Vancouver are going to love to be able to see, enjoy, and, and get a relationship with wines that are from grown and made throughout the province. And it's interesting because it seems like this is a good step or a step in the right direction. But then when you talk about all those other regulations, it also feels like they're a little bit archaic in that, I mean, that you can't have a grocery store with wine on the shelf that that you could see a school or a church. I mean, it does seem a little bit nuts that we're still following all of these rules and even the number of licenses. Would you like to see maybe that looked at again in that what is the harm in having a few more licenses? No, I think I think you're right. As long as it's you know it's it's controlled, it's alcohol. Listen, we understand uh, as much as uh, you know wine uh, is. Uh, I would argue as much goes with a meal as any as any other any, anything else. It's alcohol, and alcohol has got uh, its challenges, and it's uh, it can be subject to abuse. And so uh, we need to be careful about access. Uh, but again, in the end, it's really about a, a farm product grown and made here in BC that's to be enjoyed by people from in BC. So we, we respect uh, concerns or around social responsibility and the health concerns. I mean, it's real and it needs to be acknowledged. But on the other hand, we're just talking about uh, convenience and availability. And and again, for us, these small family-owned businesses, farms out here in the Okanagan, really throughout the whole province, um, it's about getting your product in front of the consumer. And again, with limited amount of retail access, uh, any way we can we can get maximize that or, or take advantage of it. It's it's a benefit for everybody, including consumers who who really love and support BC BQA wine. Oh, for sure. And I get what you're saying. Absolutely. It just And I brought this up when we talked to the councillor who put this motion forward as well. It just seems a little bit odd that you can go to a farmer's market on Saturday and you can buy BC wine from one of the stands that is set up at the market. You can buy craft beer from craft brewers that have set up at the market, but you can't just walk into a grocery store and do the same thing. I mean, that will change, but it does seem like slowly we're getting to that point. No, I think we've got some momentum. You're absolutely right. I think times are changing. I think I think really, you know, when it came to uh, the pandemic and people spending time or having to spend time at home and really starting to think about, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, the, the situation and supporting local. And, and the farmer's market is a great example, Jill. I think we, we see that too in the grocery store. I mean, people, you know, when they pick up a bottle of, of BC wine, um, they also think about, well, what am I going to pair with that for dinner tonight? And they tend to go back and, and, and shop even that 
much more local, picking, you know, BC uh, vegetables or BC, uh, you know, growing uh, uh, meat or product or that sort of thing. So it really brings it all together. And in the end, it's just about BC supporting BC. So I think we're slowly seeing it start to uh, chip away. We've had wine and grocery for almost eight years, it's 2015. So having uh, Vancouver City Council come around and, and make it make it at least available to, to, to grocers to start thinking about it is a huge step. And, and I hope we get to see it uh, All right. How is uh, the wine industry right now or how are uh, the crops and things going? Well, it's interesting you should ask. I've just been working on a report here that, uh, well, two things. One, the 22 vintage, that was last fall's vintage, looks fantastic. And I'm always uh, I'm always teased that every year is a great vintage, but this 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 last year is a really great vintage. We had some great warm weather, and it's really showing through in the in in the, in the wines. They're just starting to be released. Unfortunately, we had a freezing event in December uh, where it got to like minus 20, minus 30 in, in December, and that is not good for the grapes. And we just were looking at a report this morning that it uh, looks like it's uh, pretty uh, endemic throughout the whole Okanagan. And we're going to see, unfortunately, I think, crop shortages anywhere from like uh, 30 to 40 percent. So mm. I don't know what that means. Um, again, it's farming. Things could come back. And, and But again, just as it looks at it, uh, you know, as, as, as at right now, we're concerned about what the, what the crop, not the quantity, uh, the quality. Quality is always there. It's the quantity. So it remains to be seen. But uh, 22, I can tell you, that'll be showing up on shelves and hopefully in a, a Vancouver grocery store shelf soon uh, is fabulous. So encourage everyone to get out and, uh, and pick some up. All right, we will leave things on that high note. Miles, thank you as always for joining us. Anytime and uh, cheers.